Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and after you find it, I want you to turn and find the book of Zephaniah and the book of Amos, and I'll introduce the message in that time. The 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I want to tell you as you are looking, as you mark that and you are looking for Zephaniah and Amos, I want to tell you what is happening in this moment that this text is written by Paul. The historical context of 1 Thessalonians is found in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. It takes place on Paul's second missionary journey, and it recounts the time that Paul was in this city of Thessalonica. And it is while he was there that Paul spoke in the synagogues persuading some of the Jews and some of the God-fearing Gentiles that Jesus was, in fact, the promised Messiah. But some of the Jews became envious of what Paul was saying and the fact that people were believing him, and so they began to drag out the converts of Paul after he left before the city officials and authorities. And they were claiming that these Christians were committing treason, sedition against Rome. And consequently, what is the death penalty? What is the penalty for that? Death. So these envious Jews, taking those who had listened to Paul, were dragging them before authorities, claiming that they were traitors, saying that there was another king whose name is Jesus instead of Caesar. And Paul and Silas, consequently, because of their preaching, were forced to leave Thessaloniki and and they had to make their way to the Bereans, to Berea. And it was soon after that Paul would arrive at Athens and then Corinth. And it was there that he wrote his first epistle to the Thessalonians who were suffering what the Bible records as the first widespread persecution by the government. And the Thessalonians, if they did not flee, were being killed. And he was concerned that these new believers were viewing the persecution that they were suffering as the wrath of God. He was concerned that they were being forced to leave and it was being viewed as God having left them behind and forgotten them from which they had been saved. So he writes this sometime between AD 50 and 51. And so this is what he says after his introductory remarks in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Almighty God, it is my humble prayer that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation, that you in these moments would enlighten our hearts that we may know the hope that we are called to in Christ Jesus, 
that we may know the riches of his glorious inheritance among us and the greatness of his power for those who believe of us. For it is this reason that I was called to be a preacher and a teacher of the faith and of truth. So I ask that you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. If someone came up to you and said, are you saved? What would you say? Yes, of course I am. Well, how do you know? Well, I trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I recognize that I'm a sinner, cannot save myself. I believe Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cruel cross, was in the grave three days, rose from the grave, appeared and then ascended unto heaven, makes intercession for me now, sent the Holy Spirit to bear witness to who he is, and by his grace gave me the faith to believe. Hmm. Wow. Saved from what? Saved from what? What do you mean? All that matters is that I'm saved. No, it doesn't. What are you saved from? Modern evangelicals today probably cannot really answer that question from a biblical perspective. What are we saved from? So the title of the message is Saved from what? Dr. R.C. Sproul says these words recounting a story. I picked this up out of the Gospel Coalition. He has gone on to be with the Lord. He was taking an hour solace of quietude, he said, from the concophony in the faculty dining room. And he was at Temple University. And I stretched my lunch hour to the limit in order to squeeze every moment of peace I could enjoy before I went back to the classroom to teach theology to a bunch of undergrads. As the noon hour ended, I deposited my lunch in a tray bin and began to trek across the plaza to my classroom, and I was walking briskly to avoid being late, and I was alone minding my own business when suddenly, apparently out of nowhere, a gentleman suddenly appeared in front of me, blocking my forward progress. He looked at me in the eyes and said, Are you saved? I wasn't quite sure to how to respond to that intrusion. Of course, now, this is an academic, so naturally he would say that. I uttered in response the first words that came to my mouth. Saved from what? What was I thinking? But had grace not to say I was certain I'm not saved from a stranger buttonholing me and asking me questions like yours. But when I said saved from what, I think the man stopped me that day was as surprised at my question as I was surprised at his, as my answer. And he began to stammer and he began to stutter and obviously he wasn't quite sure how to respond. Save from what? Well, you know what I mean, you know. Do you know Jesus? And then he tried to give me a brief summary of the gospel. He says, this serendipitous encounter left an impression on me and I experienced a real ambivalence. On the one hand, I was delighted in my soul that someone cared enough about me to ask even, if I, even a stranger to stop me and ask me about my salvation. 
but it was clear that though this man had zeal for salvation, he was using Christian jargon. The words fell from his lips without being processed by his mind, and as a result, his words were empty of content. Clearly, the man had a love for Christ and was saved and a genuine concern for people. Few Christians indeed have the courage to engage a perfect stranger in an evangelistic discussion. But sadly, he had little understanding of what he was so zealously trying to communicate. Saved from what? Well, the passage in Thessalonians has already told us. Look at verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven who has raised from the dead that of Jesus who rescues us from the what? Wrath to come. He who rescues us from the coming wrath. What's this talking about? Paul is introducing something here to the Thessalonians who are suffering. There are the believers who are seeing their children carted off by the government. They're seeing spouses and homes broken apart because they believe there is one king and his name is Jesus Christ and they have given their lives to it and are losing it. Why would he mention the wrath of God in a letter of encouragement to people that are suffering so terribly? Well, brothers and sisters, if you want to write this down, God's wrath, God's wrath is the execution, is the execution of his just judgment. God's wrath is the execution of his just judge, judgment against those, against those who oppose and violate his law. God's wrath is the execution of his judgment against those who violate and oppose his law. Now notice, I said God. But I haven't named for you yet which person of the Godhead does it. But I'll go ahead and tell you who it is. It's Jesus. It is the Son who will execute the wrath of God on those who violate and oppose the law of God. It is not God the Father that will do it. It is not God the Spirit. It is Jesus the Christ himself who will do it. Now before we go any farther, I just want you to remember this because I do not want you to be overly vexed. If you're saved, you have nothing to be vexed about. This is just a reminder of what you've been saved from, or a minder, not a reminder, but a minder. The Bible declares in John 3.16 that God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And this aspect of his character does not negate God's judgment. And we know this from the gospel. For example, just write down Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. And Luke chapter 3, verse 7. And Romans chapter 2, verse 5. There are many, many more to give you. Don't ever believe this for a moment, that one of the attributes of God's character 
outweighs or diminishes any other of the attributes of God. God is just as loving as He is holy. And He is just as holy as He is just. And He is just as happy as He is angry for those that break His law and oppose His law. So let me un- let you understand this concept. This belief of God's wrath is a concept that went all throughout the Middle East and the Mediterranean. All pagan religions believe in a wrath of their deity. They believe this and they view it in the sense of natural disasters. Now, I mentioned to you Vider a moment ago where my aunt lived at number three Cary Circle in Vider, Texas until Katrina came. Katrina literally wiped Vider off the map like the fires wiped Maui off the map. I don't know what's there. It's been a long time since I've, I've been there. But I remember and you all remember people saying Katrina was an act of God's judgment against the country. And where did it hit? It hit in New Orleans. But where in New Orleans was strangely spared? Of all the places that the hurricane destroyed, Bourbon Street was untouched. Do you realize this is a truth? Of all the places you would think, I've been to Bourbon Street. I believe Hugh Hefner would blush if he went down Bourbon Street. I've been down it. I shall not come up it again. It is no place for me. But, but of all the places, all the people that were dislodged and disheveled and dehomed, all the dead, but Bourbon Street was not even touched. And they said it's a natural disaster. I mean, if I was going to be God and say natural disasters, I would think the San Andreas Fault should finally just finally do its thing and let the left coast fall into the sea. But see, there's people out there that don't deserve that because there's very good people out there. I like California very much. I, I, they're just salt-of-the-earth people. They're different. But you know what? That's what they think of us because we talk funny. They just look funny. So look at Zephaniah. I'm going to transition to my handwritten notes. I want you to look at Zephaniah. And I marked my Bible last week, and I want you to know this. While Long was up here, I was sitting here doing this the whole time. And I now know how hard-headed I must be. Because I was like, shut up. But he didn't. And it's all right. Zephaniah chapter 1. Verse 14, near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, and the warrior cries out bitterly, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle, cry against the fortified cities, the high corner towers, I will bring distress on men so that they will walk in light 
walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like the dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of jealousy for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one on all the inhabitants of the earth. That's what you're saved from. That is the biblical definition, the biblical example, the single sight of what you have been saved from. What have you been saved from? Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. Now I will tell you this, Zephaniah ends on a high note. It ends on a high note. This is the lowest note in the entire Bible. Speaking of the day of God, the day of wrath, I don't see a little I don't see very much gospel in it, to be honest with you. I don't really see good news. But notice these words. The day of wrath, the wrath of God will be a day that is bitter, trouble, Alarm, distress, blood, devastation, refuse, desolation, wrath, darkness, devoured, gloominess, and fire. And those who hate and violate the law of God will suffer this fate. It is going to be the worst day ever. But it literally describes the picture of hell, of torment. We Christians look forward to the return of Jesus. Amen. He doesn't fly on Air Force One, by the way. We look forward to the return of Jesus. But brothers and sisters, with the return of Jesus, it's going to come the day of the Lord. You should consider what you're safe from and what others need to be safe from as well. There is nothing more terrible than what is described here in Amos this is exactly what Paul had in mind when he was telling the people at Thessalonica that were suffering. This is not the day of the Lord. You are suffering now, yes, but God has not forsaken you. You have not lost your way. You have not been forsaken. But as the reformers would say, or any would say, it always, you must wear the crown of iron before you wear the crown of gold. With all of its rust, with all of its tetanus, with all of its weight. Suffering comes before glory. Now you think about, well, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? Well, let me help you with this a little bit. For example, you have in Acts chapter 16 the story of the Philippian jailer. And the Philippian jailer 
was there when the earthquake happened and Paul and Silas were, re were released. And so what happens? He takes them to their house and Paul and Silas minister at the house and it says everybody in the house believed and was baptized. And the Philippian jailer is told by Paul, your faith has saved you. But I want to tell you something. It didn't save him eternally. It saved him from what happens when a jailer loses his prisoner, which is summarial, summary execution. You say, well, that can't be right. He believed. No, his faith saved him from that for certain. There is a passage in the Bible, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, that says a woman will be saved through childbirth. Does that mean that if you give birth, you'll be saved? It's the same word that's used by Paul in Acts. Even more than that, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, that the believing wife saves the unbelieving husband. Does it mean then that the believing wife saves that salvation means that he's saved? How about this one? There was the woman with the issue of blood. In Luke chapter uh, 7, verse 50, she grabs a hold of Jesus' garment and says this. Jesus says to her, today your faith has saved you. So let me ask you this question. Everybody look at me. Do we understand salvation to mean we have to be a bad jailer married to an unbelieving spouse that we have to be um, we have to give birth and we have to have sickness in order to be saved by grace you and I know that that's not at all what that means and we think that every time the scripture talks about salvation, it, it's dealing with the salvation of the soul. There is no evidence in the context that that's what he's talking about. Woman, you've been healed. Your faith is going to sanctify your home and make it a home of peace. Jailer, you are going to be spared the sword. And women, you're not going to die anymore in childbirth. No, that just means they're born again. Well, the problem with that is there's no confession. There's no evidence of salvation. It's saved from the present moment. So many of the Bible, many people in the Bible use salvation very broadly, but I want you to understand how it is used technically in the Bible, and you want to write this down. Salvation is deliverance from calamity, war, disease, death, in peril. It is salvation or deliverance from calamity, war, disease, death, and peril. And we know something in the New Testament about saving faith, the salvation that saves you from the wrath to come. It is both, write these three words down, it is past, it is present, and it is future. It is past, it is present and future. I'm speaking of the faith that seals you in the blood of Jesus Christ and delivers you from the fat wrath to come. It has an aspect from the past. 
Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 mentions that we were saved in eternity past. Look, at, look there with me. Just look at it. The, the, what God's plan was. Or just write it down. I can do all this. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. There's a past concept of this. Write down Matthew chapter 25 verse 34. It says before the foundations of the world. Matthew, the, 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 the Jewish tax collector for Rome is echoing the Jewish citizen of Rome, Paul. Same thing before the foundation of the world. And it says something. We were being saved throughout history, all throughout the Bible. See, listen to me. Look at me and, and hear me. I want to help you understand something. It would be better if you read the Bible as a story than reading the Bible as a book to memorize its verses. Most of us grew up in a faith tradition that taught us to memorize it. You need to read it as a story that's absolutely true, without error, beginning to end. And it's what is it? It's God's story of salvation, past, present, and future. Right? That's what's, why it's comforting. And so from when did God start His saving work? He started it with Abraham. Right? Ever since that time. Because it was at that moment when Abraham, Abram left the Ur of Chaldees having worshipped the moon without a map or an iPhone or a GPS and left for the land flowing with milk and honey, corn and wine and barley. And he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Thus, the wrath to come was now no longer to apply to him. And it was done by the proactive work of Jesus Christ that would happen long before, long after. And so I want you to get this. Salvation in the past, from the call of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the coming of Jesus Christ until the returning of Jesus Christ. Salvation has been taking place, will take place, is taking place. In the present, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 that we are being saved. That's the present, are being saved. 2, 8, 9, 40, it's by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not the results of work, so that any can, man can boast. We are standing in this. Even in this moment, we are being saved. In the moment we have believed, we are being saved. And Romans tells us those whom God justifies... He glorifies. And what's the part that takes place between glorification and justification? Sanctification. What do you have to do to be having that? You've got to be alive and saved. So he says, those whom he justifies, he will sanctify. That's how come we can believe he who began a good work and he's faithful to complete it. We might go, boy, he's working slow. Yeah, he's, he may be working slow, but he's going to complete it. Amen? And then there's future. Those whom God justifies, what does he do? He glorifies and ultimately is the ultimate salvation. Bill's experienced that. My aunt has experienced that. Your loved ones in Christ have experienced that. In Christ, they've experienced that salvation. And they're never ever going to be cast out of heaven. So that salvation continues forever. Past, present, and future. But saved from what? Saved from 
this day of bitterness, trouble, alarm, distress, blood, devastation, refuge, desolation, wrath, darkness, devouring, gloominess, and fire. When God pours out not just His wrath, but His wrath upon this earth. Now, look at me. You say, well, James, if that's what turns you on, you go ahead and believe that. Because it just doesn't do it for me. Well, I'm a sad, it just doesn't do it for you. You know, my house isn't on fire right now, but I'm still glad there's a fireman in a fire station. I don't want to have to show up and see my house burning and find out there's no fireman to come. Just because I don't think I need it doesn't mean I don't need it. So yeah, hey James, it's okay if you believe in this stuff. I mean, you know, after all, God's a God of love. And you see, friends, I want you to learn something. In the Old Testament, there was one single way that they could tell at the very moment whether a prophet was real or not. Now we might say, was it because whatever the prophet said would come to pass, and if it didn't come to pass, then whatever said prophet said was a false one. No. All of the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Micah, and Amos, all declared, flee the wrath to come. Now I don't imagine Joel Osteen's going to talk about that. He's going to tell you this is your best life now. And I got news for you. If that's what you believe, he's right. Because a day of wrath is coming. And you and I want Christ to return. And the day he returns, he will return in glory for the saints and with vengeance and wrath, with bitterness in trouble, alarm, distress, blood, he will come. Righteousness written on his thigh, through his mouth will come a sword that pierces both bone and flesh, which is the word of God. I told you to repent, and you have not. It is too late now. You cannot flee the wrath that is. Look at Amos. Just go over to the left. Amos chapter 5. And then I'll tell you what you're saved from and I'll let you go. Amos chapter 5. Verses 18 through 20. This is the guy who doesn't think he needs a fireman. This is a guy who says, James, it's okay for you to believe that negative stuff. I'm, I'm on a higher plane, brother. I don't think of God as any other way than this is for you, friend. I don't think there's any one of you in here, by the way, like that. But there's people that are listening. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. And when a man flees from the lion, a bear meets him. 
He goes home, leans his head against the wall, and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? There are those today that talk about the coming of the Lord, that talk about the coming of the Lord. Jeremiah, the great weeping prophet, preached the greatest sermon ever preached outside of the Sermon on the Mount called the Temple Sermon. And at the Temple Sermon, they killed him for it. At the Temple Sermon, he says, you claim we have the Temple, we have the Temple, we have the Temple. And you say these things are going to happen to us, but we have the Temple, we have the Temple, we have the Temple. God will never do it. Guess who the audience of these words are to? the people that denied the message of Jeremiah prior to being carried off. There are people today amongst the name Christians, have bear the name Christians, may even have a ministry of Christianity that believe there's nothing to fear. Brothers and sisters, I tell you with all honesty, there is nothing to fear for those who have escaped the wrath of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But I tell you the truth. If you have not, I can't begin to explain to you how terrible it will be. Look at me. This is what we were saved from. We're concerned about being saved from Bidenomics. It works. You remember that? The Fox News cartoon yesterday was absolutely hysterical. It had this master architect standing behind the president, and he says, I think it's working great. It says Bidenomics, and everything around him is just torn down buildings. Now, I'm not using that to be political. Believe me, I could cast some real shade over the other guy real quick, and I'd like to do it more, to be honest with you, because I think he's just mean. But I'm going to tell you something. If those two men don't find Christ, and if the people that are betting their future on them don't find Christ, it is a shame to me. I hope he hears this and he won't. I will call his name because it should be called. Dr. Robert Jeffries at First Baptist Dallas came out and full-throated and endorsed President Trump as the nominee before anything, before any trial or anything in the system could take place because he wants a place of position. Do you know those Fox News contributors make $10,000 every time they appear on camera? Guess who hadn't been on TV for a while on Fox News? Dr. Jeffers. Do you think that gives him a platform? I don't believe the First Baptist Church of Dallas needs to have a preacher saying that, but you know what? What, God, what man means for evil, God works for good. But, G, but Donald Trump, 45, is not the Savior. And, George, and, and Joe Biden cannot believe, bring about the day of the Lord. What you and I re, need to remember is what we've been delivered from. You may not have ever thought this in your life. You may have never heard this in your life. Then bury it in your heart. 
And let it be part of the zeal for so great a love that God had for you. He killed his son on your behalf, whom you and I have betrayed every day of our life, that we may avoid this bitter trouble, alarm, distress, blood, devastation, refuge, wrath, darkness, devouring, gloominess, and fire, executed, executed by Jesus himself. The Father will not do the, the wrath. It says God will, but God is three persons. God is one essence in three persons, right? We learned that. In three persons. He's one essence, one God, three persons, one procession, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, one mission to make Him known, undivided, with liberty and justice for all. So you say, well, how do you know it's Jesus? Because what did Jesus Christ do? He came to save us from whom? God. So when someone asks you the question, Kayleen, what are you saved from? Your answer is God. Rick, if those Catholic sweet ladies you work with ask you, Rick, what are you saved from? You're a Protestant. You say, God, Mary Jo, down there at the insurance agency, I mean, that's a great place. I mean, you're, you, I mean, insurance is a great thing to have because that kind of mitigates fear, right? What are you saved from? God. What? That you, you, what? God? What do you mean saved from God? Let me take you to a book called Zephaniah. Give me an hour and I'll find it and I'll show you where it's at. It's right after Zechariah and... Menonias and Third James. Brothers and sisters, you and I have been saved from God by His Son. Jesus Christ came to this earth and by the power of God the Spirit spoke to men of old of a father who longs to be with his children, who are alienated. And as the son, he came from heaven and took on the form of a man, the form of a slave, not considering his equality with God to be something to possess, but came to reveal God in the flesh and to look at man eyeball to eyeball and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Will you come? And since the Trinity works in unity, when Jesus Christ the man in the grave was dead, because not one part of the Trinity can do anything without the other two. It was the entire Trinity in that grave that raised the man Jesus from the dead. And it was only the entire Trinity that could, that could raise that Jesus who was in the grave that was dead because that man, Jesus Christ, became sin itself so that you and I who are sinners may have the righteousness of God. 
What are you safe from? God, why do we worship him? Because we can. We don't have to fear this day. We will not see it. We will not participate in it. We shall not be spectators of it. We will behold His glory as they behold His wrath and we will be separated from them and they from us and forever and ever and ever for 10,000 years times 10,000 years forever and ever we will praise Him because who He is and we will not remember what He saved us from. We will remember then what He saved us to. And what you and I need to remember now is what we have been saved for. And what we have been saved for is this. For each other and for our neighbors. Our nation still has hope because our nation still has blood-bought, born-again believers. And when they will bow their knees to God, and live their life as they should without compulsion to change other lives, you will see one by one people being changed because the message is so good. Some say, well, it diminishes who God is. Well, listen, in the Old Testament, the prophets, they told the truth of who God was, and the false prophets were the ones who came along and tickled their ears. It is no wonder that Paul the Apostle said, the time will come when men will not listen to sound teachings, but will gather around themselves men to tickle their ears. Brothers and sisters, this wrath of God is already being poured out now on this earth. The wrath of God is already being poured out now on this earth. Just write these two verses down as I, I'm done. You can look at them later. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, and Romans 5, 8. The wrath of God is already visible upon the earth. The wrath of God. And number two, the wrath of, the wrath of God and its eschatological event, the end time event, has already become and has already begun. Romans 1, 18. You know what it is? It's because men have exchanged the image of the one true God to be worshipped into themselves because God has given them over to a depraved mind. And then he lists homosexuality and everything else under the sun. None of you are participating in any of that. Why? By divine fiat you have been delivered. Amen? Don't you think this is a good enough message to go tell? Do you think this is a good enough thing to go out and put a smile on your face at lunch if they bring you broccoli but you ordered corn? I mean, if they do put white gravy on your hamburger steak, I think you could smile and say, I really don't prefer that. But my point is this, leave here encouraged. The wages of sin is death. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And yet that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. 
and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, he will save us. For it is with a mouth a man confesses, and with his heart he truly believes. Oh yes, I know I'm saved. And oh yes, I know what I'm saved from. God. Salvation is of God, from God, for God. Salvation is of God, from God, for God. You can quote the 20, the reformer for, from August 2023, James Egan, for that. Salvation is of God, from God, for God. Would you stand?